Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, during this 14 months of this pandemic, we at Bloomberg Radio and Television have been so fortunate to have access to a wide range of experts to help us navigate what we need to know, what is important. And here uh, at Bloomberg Markets on Fridays, we've been chatting with Lauren Sauer. She's the Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I should know that the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And Lauren, you've been so good to us over these months, kind of keeping us up to date on uh, you know the really important news about this virus and the therapeutics and, and now the vaccines. And I guess one of the questions now is you know, dude don't we have a question we got a question all teed up all right you want to you want to go that route you go that route mountain well i just <laughs> we've been talking about it at least i have i'm nervous lauren no what so we we, we joke around about this american dream mall all the time in rutherford new jersey and it just made me think um it's going to be a place where there's a ton of people gathered and I wonder what an expert would think about going to a place like that right now. I mean, even if you're vaccinated, would you feel comfortable going to, I mean, it doesn't have to be there, an Orioles game, or maybe you're a Nats fan. Um, <laughs> would you be comfortable going on the tee? I mean, it, do you go to these places where a lot of people are gathered and then, I assume you're vaccinated, would you wear a mask or not? Yeah, well, I want to start by saying, of course, I'm an Orioles fan. Got to get that out of the way. <laughs> but um, I, I think I would feel safe in ballparks, especially if they're maintaining the um, sort of seat social distancing that they've been doing. So the seat restrictions. Um, interestingly, you know, I think we're seeing some of the fall sports like football um, go back to full stadium capacity. And, and I'm not sure I'd be ready for that. My Personally, of course, I'm speaking, but I, I think that an outdoor setting where you feel like you're not up against people for long periods of time, where you have that space to move, I'd be comfortable there. I probably would still wear a mask, maybe not if I was sitting in my seat and felt like I was, you know, six feet away from people. But when I headed back to the concessions or when I went to the bathroom um, or in, you know, coming and going from those spaces. So that's like always the biggest challenge is when people get sort of crowded together as they're entering or exiting the stadium. Um, a an indoor mall for an extended period of time, I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable there and definitely not um, other sort of indoor spaces where you have no control over how close you are to people. Well, to continue, I mean, you know, I'm a long-suffering New York Knicks fan, Lauren, <laughs> and but fortunately, they are back in the playoffs, and they have they're opening their playoffs this weekend at Madison Square Garden, the world's most famous arena, of course. They're going to have 15,000 fans there, and I believe the capacity is maybe 17 or 18,000, so it's pretty darn full indoor arena. But that's apparently, you know, as per the New York and CDC guidelines, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it, so it, it's all about what your personal comfort is once you've been vaccinated. I think, you know, we do want to keep as much of the distancing, as much of the masking as we can, just because it, it protects people who either can't be vaccinated or um, have chosen not to. And so, you know, it is a little bit of that, you know, doing something for someone else piece. But I also think that um, 
if you're comfortable and you've been vaccinated and you've, you know, gone your full vaccine schedule, so either one or both doses, depending on what you got and waiting that two-week period after, um, and you do feel comfortable and you don't feel like, you know, there's maybe another family member in your household or someone that you spend a lot of close time with that is at risk, then I think it's a different, it's a different calculus, right? And if you feel comfortable, maybe you keep that mask on you in case you you find yourself in a situation where you'd feel more comfortable having it on or where where you're entering into somewhere where it does feel like masking is more appropriate or even required because I think one of the outcomes of this new guidance is that we're having you know patchwork masking requests and so you want to have it ready if you need it but if you feel comfortable and you you feel like you're not going to put anyone else vulnerable at risk then I think that that's a different question. You think we're going to be wearing masks in like five years? You know, I've been thinking a lot about that, actually. It's it's hard to assess because I do feel like as a country, we've been pretty resistant to masking. Um, I have to say the the drop in some of the other respiratory infections is appealing. Yeah. Um, you know, some countries have, have had a long masking culture and, and they, you know, it just feels like part of daily life. I think we'll have to see what happens with uh, vaccine coverage and how and long ventilation. the last. Yeah, and, and if we can make some really good changes to our buildings, take this opportunity to do that. I think, I think that there's a potential that we will see at least sporadic mask wearing for a long time to come. I think it, it'll be really interesting, Lauren, to see if um, we really do make ventilation changes, building yeah. changes. Um, and that is, like you say, that, that would be great for us on, on a whole um, number of different um, disease issues. Uh, I actually like wearing a mask occasionally, but I've recently found that mask knee is real. That that happens and it's difficult to get rid of. So I guess you got to wash your face, I guess, a little bit more. Lawrence Hour from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you very much, as usual, for joining us. Now, I have been pretty pumped to talk to Bill Studebaker. He joins us today, President and Chief Investment Officer at Robo Globo, uh, Robo Global. Sorry, I'm sure Bill people probably make that mistake a lot. Robo Global. Um, he is going to talk to us about AI, 5G, autonomous vehicles, robotics, and semiconductors, which is obviously what makes it so cool. But, um, Bill, you got a bunch of ETFs that you have created there. Um, the Robo ETF is the most famous, but you also track AI with THNQ and health tech with HTEC. Um, I noticed they all seem to be doing equally well this year. If I look back over the past 12 months, each one is gaining um, more than 50%. Why do they track each other so closely? Well, I think, uh, good morning, and thanks for having me. I think what you're seeing right now is that, uh, you know, these are technologies, uh, particularly with robotics and AI, that are being applied to all industries and all markets. And these were, uh, years ago, you know, kind of viewed as niche applications where, you know, fast forward, you know, eight years later, we couldn't be more convicted in how these uh, technologies are, are changing the way we live and work. And in, in healthcare, the exciting thing now is that we're in the process of beginning to you know, cure chronic disease. I mean, healthcare as we've had it has been really sick care. Someone gets sick and you basically go and you know, try to take a remedy to, to uh, um, you know, prevent it from spreading, not always just curing it. Um, but now we're moving into a completely new uh, digital realm. I mean, healthcare is less than 1% digitized. And um, people uh, going forward are not going to live until they're 
70 or 80, try 100, try 20 plus, because we've got the ability not just to arrest the signs of aging, but in some cases reverse it. So, Bill, I'd love to get a sense of, you know, one of the key issues throughout technology right now is the real basic building block of technology, semiconductors. Can you explain to me and to our listeners how it got to a point where there's this acute shortage of chips out there and how long is it going to take to wind its way through? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I, mean, I think it's uh, pretty similar to uh, most, you know, cyclical industries. They're capital intensive. Companies are always reluctant to, to add too much capacity once. Uh, they have to manage their business, you know, for shareholders, et cetera. Uh, and the industry right now that we're seeing is it's going through really um, unprecedented times with the supply environment. And, you know, meaningful inventory replenishment is not going to happen until very likely the first half of, of 20, you know, 22. Um, and I, I think what you're seeing now is the need for semiconductors is really exploding as we're having advancements in, in 5G and edge computing and, and basically all of our assets that are around us um, have semiconductors that are soon to be, if not now, uh, beginning to um, aggregate data and communicate with us. So um, the whole world is becoming techified and, dig and digitized. Uh, what... what how did this work out? Because I know you used to be a portfolio manager, right? So, um, wh what made you decide to start creating these ETFs at Robo Global? And you know, I'm always fascinated by it because I think this is the way the um, younger generations are are, are really investing and, and going to invest, especially over you know the uh, mobile phone technology, etc. Well, I, I guess I was fortunate uh, to spend my career kind of looking at technologies and industrial companies and, and was pretty focused on the concept of, of automation. As I was kind of looking around, you know, um, began to think to myself and my, and my partners were, you know, we're going to be increasingly automating everything. And we've kind of started up Robo. We, we looked around and, you know, you know how could we in, want to invest in a theme of automation? There weren't any dedicated hedge funds doing anything in automation. Um, you know, how about venture capital, private equity? Very little, obviously nothing going on in, uh, uh, in the mutual fund uh, long-only world. So we, we knew that there were uh, dedicated pure play companies, you know, like Intuitive Surgical, you know, like Fanuc, et cetera. But if you went to classic Wall Street gigs and pull up the word robotics, you know, what companies would populate that? Nothing. Um, how about if you pulled up AI? That was just kind of an Elon Musk science fiction term. So we actually were the first company ever to have gone out and created essentially um, uh, the S&P, the, the NASDAQ, um, which is the Robo Global Index, to track robotics and AI. And we've done that for uh, healthcare innovation, um, and we've also done this for AI. So that's kind of unique uh, in terms of what we've done. Hey, Bill, 30 seconds. What are, what's the sector that's really getting your attention right now? Well, it's really hard to isolate it to, to just one. I mean, I think one thing that stands out that I think a lot of your listeners would understand uh, is e-commerce. I mean, e-commerce, because the pandemic before um, was sort of a luxury. Well, it's been turbocharged where it's a necessity. E-commerce grew 45% last year. When you look around in, into in North America warehouses, I would say less than 5% of warehouses 
are heavily automated. So we're beginning um, to see even increasingly more technology that's being put in to speed up um, you know, fulfillment and supply chain. And mm. this is going to go on for years, if not decades. Yeah, absolutely fascinating, and I th- I think you're you're definitely right there because everybody has to match Amazon, yep. right? They've always, yep. they've all got to get it to you in 24 hours or less. Bill Studebaker, there, President, Chief Investment Officer at Robo Global. This is Bloomberg. Yeah, I'm really digging these big takes, Matt. I mean, these are some pretty juicy stories, and Bloomberg News, you know, goes really deep. And uh, today Love is it. no difference. Tom Orlick, he's the chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us. Uh, and what I like about Tom is he spent uh, over a decade in China, in Beijing, working and living there. So he's got a great global view. And the story that they did today, it's got a really cool uh, headline. World-dominating superstar firms get bigger, techier, and more Chinese. Tom, tell us what you guys and your team uh, looked at here when you looked at some of the really big global companies. Thanks, Paul. Uh, great to be on the show. Um, so what we've done uh, is we've taken a, a grand historical sweep um, and had a look at the evolution of the biggest 50 firms in the world uh, over the last 30 years. We pulled data from the Bloomberg Terminal on their market cap, their profit margins, their tax rates, how much cash they've got, where they're from, uh, and what they do, uh, and use that to tell a story about what the biggest firms in the world looked like back in 1990 and what they look like today. Um, and as you said, the sort of the title captures some of the big themes. We're looking at a move east, more Chinese firms at the top of the global rankings. We're looking at a shift from big oil to big tech. Um, and we're also looking at big firms which really just operate in a different way to how they did 30 years ago, doing less capital spending, often employing less workers. And that has some important implications for the way the economy works. You know, so I used to be a big Dead Kennedys fan. Um, I guess I still am a big Dead Kennedys fan, but I used to listen to um, Jello Biafra uh, talk about his social justice concerns. And this was one of them, you know, that the world was going to be increasingly controlled by a smaller number of consolidating companies. And to me, this story boils down to three um, important data points. Number one, the top 50 companies in the world are now worth 28% of global GDP. 30 years ago, they were less than 5% of global global GDP. Number two, um, they're not spending as much money creating jobs. 30 years ago, they were spending 9% of revenue on CapEx. Now it's 3% of revenue on CapEx. And number three, they're not paying um, as much in taxes, not nearly as much as tax in taxes as they used to. I think 30 years ago, it was like 35%. Now it's 17%. So I just think um, the interesting question raised by this article, which I obviously loved, Tom, by the way, is um, what are governments going to do about it? I mean, are you going to try and raise taxes in a global way, which we can see is difficult and maybe not even fair. It kind of destroys the idea of competition. Are you going to try and break up these companies because they're too big? Are they, you know, have they become oligopolies in some way? I mean, what what, what, what do you think governments are going to try and do about it? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, and if you think about sort of the grand sweep of economic history for the last 50 years or so, um, there was this moment at the beginning of the 1980s, the Reagan revolution in the US, the Thatcher revolution 
um, in the UK, um, which really tilted the playing field in favor of corporations and against workers, right? And that was the kind of the beginning of this this trend towards bigger and bigger firms paying smaller and smaller amounts in taxes and keeping more and more profits uh, for their owners. Um, so the question is, has the pen- pendulum swung too far? How are we now at a moment when policy is going to start shifting back in favor of in favor of workers, um, in favor of greater competition? And there are some signs that that's happening, right? We've got the Biden administration talking about a global minimum tax. Um, we've got different bits of the U.S. government taking aim at some of the big tech platform companies saying you're operating in an unfair way. Um, and globally, uh, we've got China taking a swing at some of its big tech champions, companies like Alibaba, Tencent and Meituan. Um, so, I mean, who knows? The corporate lobby is obviously incredibly powerful. And these firms are also big because they're providing things which add value, right? I like my iPhone. I like being able to order things on Amazon. Um, but there are some indications so that this true. is the beginning of a pushback. So true. We want our stuff. We still yeah. want our stuff, right? Yeah, we want our stuff. I mean, who could imagine living through the pandemic without the benefits of ordering on Amazon here or Alibaba in China? Who could do their job without searching for information using Google. I mean, right, there's a reason Google has become a verb is because it's an incredibly (laughs) valuable service. Um, So even as we think about some of the costs of these superstar firms, we also need to remember that they're superstars for a reason, right? They are providing goods and services that people really value. So, Tom, I think, you know, right now we have the Biden administration proposing a 15 percent kind of minimum tax and maybe taxing foreign profits at 21 percent and things like that. Is taxation one of the areas that can maybe be addressed most quickly or in the nearest term? Yeah. So there was this uh, there was this striking presentation by this uh, this academic at Davos a couple of years ago. Um, Davos, of course, the sort of the main gathering point for the world's corporate elite. Uh, And this academic came in and said, you know what, if we're going to talk about inequality, we need to talk about tax. If we try and have a discussion about inequality without talking about tax, it's like we're having a discussion about putting out a fire without talking about water. Um, So tax really has to be at the heart of this. Um, Taxes on corporations, um, that's a challenge for any country in the world. Um, And of course, as the Biden administration is now discovering, if you try and do something globally, if you try and say, you know what, we need a global minimum to prevent companies shifting profits around to dodge paying taxes in the place where they're actually doing business, well, that's an even harder discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you have, you know, have a country like Ireland who only charges 12%, um, and they're happy with it like that. Um, they want they want Apple and Google there uh, paying their twelve percent. Uh, you you got to guess they make a lot of money with that as well. But it's a longer conversation. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Tom Orlick there with his look at our big take. This is Bloomberg. I want to get over right now to Kyle Stock and just quickly wrap up something that's been obsessing me of late, and that is. <laughs> 
the Ford F-150 Lightning. We first saw the electric pickup truck, I think almost by accident, when Joe Biden was hanging out at the Rouge on Wednesday. And I was underwhelmed, but the more I look at it, the more stoked I'm getting for this electric truck. And it's got huge ramifications for um, you know the entire industry. So, Kyle, what do you think about it? Yeah, uh, big vehicle for them, and everyone, for me, it comes down to two things, which everyone else is talking about, too, is the price, which is shockingly low. Everyone, Starts at forty grand or less. Yeah, and who knows how bare bones that one's going to be, but in terms of the get-in, like, that's cheaper than the new electric Mustang. That's, you know, after incentives, it's comparable with the regular F-150, so... Everyone was surprised about that, uh, count me as well. And then um, the frunk, uh, the huge it's gigantic. open trunk up front, which is just brilliant. Because normally yeah. it would have to hold a 6.2 liter V8, and now it's got nothing yep. in there. And coolant and spark plugs and all the other things that they don't need to worry about now. So, What I love is that... Um, if my power fails in some sort of Armageddon um, or, you know, uh, zombie situation, this truck can power my house, Paul, or yours, or if we live <laughs> together, our house, for three days. That's yeah, awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. Kyle, is this, I mean, I mean, for the U.S. market, it, it seems to me, this U.S. market doesn't go electric until the Ford F-150 goes electric. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it. This is a, could be a big, big moment. Well, that's what's crazy about this. I mean, everyone's talking about how it, you know, competes against other trucks. But honestly, like, this thing's going to compete against the Honda Accord. It's going to compete against yep. everything because there's really, you know, there's no guilt anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And I think most people have, like, a, a little bit of a secret truck fetish. So My mom wants one badly. And, does uh, she? Yeah. As we know, she's right about almost everything. I will say, we, uh, uh, my wife also wants a truck, and it's like a different truck every couple of days because Kyle does these Instagram reviews of whatever cool vehicle <laughs> he's driving, and she follows him. And then she'll he'll do like a review of the Defender, and then she'll send me his review and be like, we have to get the Defender. Look what Kyle did on the Defender. So I recommend you follow Kyle Stock on Instagram to check out his work. You can also get his stories on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.